Pie. This is the podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending the week ending November 15. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up uh, on this pod- podcast, you'll hear our conversation with uh, director M. Baker, who made the film I Am No Bird. And we also spoke to the legendary Mel- uh, Mary Mikalakis about the Melbourne Music Bus Tour. Uh, we also got to chat to Meow Meow ahead of her show Apocalypse Meow. Crisis is Born was happening at the Malthouse Theatre. Had a bit of a chat about karaoke, do's and don'ts. What do you <laughs> sing? What do you don't? Uh, and um, there's a, a lesbian two dude and Christmas. <laughs> and uh, Dr Andy, we spoke to the for Weird Science about plaque on the brain, how to get it off. And sleep. <laughs> You've got to sleep. <laughs> and X-Men film producer Jason Taylor. Triple R. M. Baker is a documentary maker whose debut feature, I Am No Bird, focuses on four brides from four countries, India, Australia, Mexico and Turkey, in the lead up to their wedding day. And the director joins us now. M. Baker, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks so much for having me. I love this show. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's our pleasure to have you. Um, the title's taken from a line in Jane Eyre. Can you tell us about how the title relates to the themes you want to explore? Yeah, so I've mentioned to a few people before that for obvious copyright reasons, I couldn't call it Four Weddings. Um, <laughs> so I did need to think of something to call it. Um, but I suppose I liked Jane Eyre as a title because it kind of heralds back to a bit of a, I think, like an imperfect and quite flawed feminism Um around marriage and around, I guess, women trying to stake out something for themselves in marriage. Um, obviously, Jane Eyre is not perfect. Like, Rochester has another wife locked in the attic, so that's not <laughs> the perfect <laughs> marriage. Um, but I did think that there was really something to the idea of struggling against an institution while simultaneously participating in it, because I think that's a really universal experience for women, um, some more than others. Mm. How have you observed uh, your relationship to marriage changing? Um, well, I got married, so that, <laughs> so that was a big change. Um, this so, you got married after the after you finished? Yeah, a week after I finished the film. Um, so there's a bit of a deadline to get it done before the film was finished. Um, but yeah, like I started making this film when I was 25, um, so it was a little while ago now. It took about four years to make. Um, and at the start of that process, you know, I initially wanted to make the film at all um, because I was. I didn't feel like marriage or weddings really had much to offer me. Um, but I found myself, you know, deeply in love with someone and wanting to commit to someone. Um, you know, at that time, marriage wasn't, there wasn't same sex marriage in this country. It felt like a really archaic, patriarchal institution. Um, and I, I still feel that it is. But I think that I was really curious about the way that women navigated that institution and what they found from it that was meaningful for themselves because I think that every institution is patriarchal. Every institution is set up to benefit men. And I think that marriage is a really good place to kind of examine the way that women interact with the world. Mm. How did you come to choose the four women that the film focuses on? And can you tell us a little bit about each of them? Yeah, absolutely. So there's four different women. Um, there's Anna, who's from Australia, and she's a deeply religious uh, Pentecostal Christian woman. Uh, there's Lutan Lu, who is a woman from India, from the northeast Rongmainaga ethnic minority group. Um, there is Benai from Turkey, who is just, <laughs> she's sort of just a 
bundle of joy. Um, but she's getting married on Mother's Day uh, after her mother passed away from cancer when she was a child. And there's also uh, Dahlia from Mexico who is marrying her girlfriend um, and comes from, you know, quite a conservative Catholic family. And they all have religious kind of undertones, don't they? Yeah, in a sense they do. Um, I suppose Dahlia's wedding was not a religious ceremony, but yeah, I mean, it, I, I do think that it goes to show the um, the reach that religion has, even when we think we live in a secular society. We saw that here ourselves very clearly um, throughout the same-sex marriage debate. Um you know, religion is really pervasive and it's is very meaningful to a lot of people. I think, though, religion and, and marriages uh, have kind of – they've been together for so long and you have these rich traditions and it doesn't matter what – like even I was watching um, the rehearsal for um, What's-Her-Name's Wedding in the Mosque – Ben, I? Ben, thank you. Watching her, that rehearsal. But there was something, there's something really kind of beautiful and emotional about having that tradition and, you know, having that um, sense of, you know, everyone knows what they're doing and this is how it's done. And it's kind of, it's, it's a, I think it's quite beautiful as well. But at the same time, you know, there's obviously other things going I don't know what my question is <laughs> no I, I feel like I can respond to your yeah. statement because I, I had a lot of the same you know conflict in myself and I feel like you know that conflict is something that women you know live with in themselves all the time you know I'm not interested in a version of feminism that tells women that they have to abandon their culture and their faith mm. um I think that that is a really narrow understanding of feminism and that we need to, you know, empower women to make decisions from within the context that they, you know, come at life from. Yeah. Watching these four stories unfold, did you, did your, how did your relationship with Mary change in the process? What were the things that you saw that influenced uh, how you felt at the end of it? I think that, you know, the thing that I resented the most um, about being a bride um, was I felt an enormous pressure to be beautiful. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't feel like God, my... That's so true. I haven't thought yeah. about that before, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I don't feel like my, you know, physical beauty is my, you know, the best thing about me. And it felt like the thing that was going to be most strongly emphasised on the day. And that was something that I really... Um, felt uncomfortable with and kind of railed against. Um, but I saw that there were so many other things that I felt were so powerful, um, community, you know, culture, this kind of joint hope of, you know, all the people around you, um, you know, really just hoping for good things in your future. And that was something that, like, I felt was really important to me. You travelled to three countries beyond Australia. Did you come back with any travel stories? Um, no one's ever asked me that question, <laughs> which seems like such an obvious question. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that my favorite one, so, um, Ben, I, and I, you know, we don't have a language in common. Ben, I does, speaks very limited English and I speak even more limited Turkish. Um, but somehow she still managed to throw me a birthday party, which was a couple <laughs> of days before her own wedding. Um, wow. it, like we pulled over by the side of the road and suddenly she had fireworks and was like, <gasps> setting off fireworks outside the car and a cake appeared out of nowhere and that was that was pretty amazing and I think it goes to show you know that that was the kind of person that she was she was very like very compassionate and cared about other people a lot yeah what do you think makes the perfect wedding oh my god I don't know (laughs) 
<laughs> what makes a perfect wedding? Um, I just want to know because I'm getting married and I want to. I want you to add some hot tips. Well, I've been married for eight months, so I'm a bit of an expert. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. I think probably uh, two people really wanting to be there is probably step one. Um, and then I think that if everybody's families get along and love everybody there, um, that is such a, a gift. Um, and I have become increasingly aware that that's not something that everybody has. And I think that that makes a big difference. If you can have that, that's such a privilege. Yeah. And what did you pick out being immersed in the Pentecostal community in Melbourne? Um, yeah, that was really interesting. I suppose, you know, in traveling around the world, um, in, like, even within Melbourne, that was a community that, you know, had I not been filming this documentary, I wouldn't have had access to it, even though it's so nearby, you know, because I grew up really secular. That's It's very removed from my experience. Um, yeah, I suppose uh, I, I'm the kind of person that I like to speak to people that have beliefs really different from mine. And, and although I think Anna and I, you know, are different in a lot of ways, we get along really well. Um, and... Yeah, I, I think I, I just really enjoyed kind of seeing a side of life that I hadn't seen before. You know, mm. I, I'd never been to, I mean, I'd basically never been to church other than at school, you know. So it was just a really interesting, yeah, experience. Was the church excited to see you and the cameras or was like, who's this well, interloper? it was just me. So, I mean, they probably <laughs> didn't even, yeah. Um, I mean, they knew I was there and I told them that I would be there. And I was, you know, I it's a film about Anna rather than a film about sort of their their broader church. Um so yeah, they were they were fine. <laughs> so there are two Q and A screenings coming up at the Classic Cinema this Friday, November fifteen at seven pm, and at Thornbury Picture House on Sunday, November seventeen at five pm. Is it is it you answering questions? It is. Um, Thornbury has sold out, so there's no more seats at Thornbury, and the Classic is about to sell out. Okay. Um, so if you would like to come and see the film, um, please don't delay. <laughs> Buy some tickets. I think it's about twenty five left, um, and probably a bunch of those will be taken by my aunties and uncles. So <laughs> get on it quick. Um, but, yeah, I'll be answering the questions at both the Q&As. Cool. Well, I Am No Bird opens nationally on November 14 and we've been speaking with director M Baker. Thanks so much. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. You a fan of karaoke? Oh, I've come around. It's a hard word. It's a hard thing. Yeah. To, yeah. I've come around to it because I've, I've had friends that are so passionate about it and have dragged me to it over the years yeah. that I'm getting there, but I used to really dislike it. Yeah, I think um, I think it's okay just to be, oh, yeah, about it. Yeah, it's mm. fine. It's Yeah, but it was, it, yeah, you know when you have people that are really just love something so much and you're just like, I've got to try and get on board mm. with this a little bit. I've come around to it bit by bit. I went to a um, party not too long ago and they had karaoke and it was very much a um, kind of, uh, family party, so the you know parents, children, all that kind of stuff there, um, and like an episode of Kath and Kim, yes, yeah. Um, but it was man, it was so funny. It was so much fun. It's really fun, I think, when you have such a a, a good mix. Oh yeah, of of people doing it. Um, this one, it um, the guy started it, and he was brilliant. Like, and it was like everyone was like, oh. Oh, you could really sing, you know. And he sang um, Tom Jones. And then the next people that got up did Flame Trees. And it was just, you know, too. And it's like, oh, yeah, there, there's the drop back down there. That's yeah. great. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I just I, I just love it when people can can sell it as well. Like even if you can't sing, the commitment and you know putting in some dance moves and and whatnot is enough to to get it over the line. Um, there's some big no nos though. Um, uh, I'm tr- I'll try to think. I'm trying to think of a few, but there's one that I saw that was like, oh mate. So there was a. Um, a friend got up and he was singing a song and there was like a um like someone's nephew she would have been about maybe eight or nine years old and they got up and they were singing bohemian rhapsody right see i bohemian rhapsody is a is a it can transform parties can't it yeah, yeah. It can be amazing i've got a friend who just tries to when we're at parties her thing is to try and get the entire party singing bohemian rhapsody yeah so she'll be like and to just start singing in the corner until someone joins along with her, and not eight times out of ten, oh, she'll work. get she'll get the crowd singing Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, because everyone knows the words mm. and it's easy. Yeah, so this guy you also don't want to leave someone hanging, clapping in the corner of oh, the room. I, I was at a party with her recently where she was just like, I said to her, "No, it's not the right time." It was cold. We we're around a fire outside. She goes, "No, nah, I'm going to make this happen." And I said, "This is not the time." And I just left her. I was like, "I'm not. Oh. I'm not coming in with you." Which do you think it works better if there's more people or less? So I'm picturing if there's like oh. five people around a fire. Nah. Not into it. Yeah, I think more because people get feel the pressure of, oh, well, yeah. you're doing this, so I've got to do this, so it kind of ripples through. Mm. Love the ripple effect oh. of being <laughs> Anyway, so, these, so there was a guy um, and uh, this eight-year-old was singing Bohemian Rhapsody. And now the eight-year-old was just kind of standing there with the microphone, just standing there looking at the lyrics, singing along. Um, and then uh, there was someone else that came in. I don't know if it was a cousin or an older brother or an uncle. This is the type of person, you know when you see people and you're like, I can't work out if you're 15 or 35. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, and it's early November and I thought, I hope you're doing November or there's just this, there's some questionable growth <laughs> of a moustache happening. Yeah. Like, what's that? And also... Are you a 35-year-old who isn't looking after themselves or are you a 15-year-old trying to prove that you're, you're a man? You're an adult, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, anyway, he gets up and he's, you know, standing with the kid and, like, kind of, you know, being really supportive, you know, or giving the illusion that he's there to support the kid. But really, it's like, mate, we all know that you want to sing this. Oh. Like, we know... Oh, so he was doing the... The creep. Yeah. Oh, man. The big creep. The creep. The karaoke creep. The lean over. The, oh, yeah, I'll show you Mike. And and was singing along. And then there was an instrumental break and they went air guitars, right? So, you know, everyone was playing air guitars except for the kid because he's got two hands on the mic, right? So then this 35 slash 15-year-old goes... Here, I'll I'll just hold the mic for you so you can play air guitar. So it takes the mic off him and the kid's just standing there and he doesn't want to play air guitar, he just wants to stand there and sing. And so they're trying to encourage him to play air guitar. And um, you know, the guy that was singing with him originally is just kind of still singing and you know, doing his own thing. And then this other guy has taken a mic off a child. Oh, no. He's taken a mic off a child. Oh. Obviously, to begin with, was just like, oh, this is so you can, you know, let me hold this so you can do the air guitar. And then it goes back into the song and then he keeps the microphone and stands up and the kid is just left standing there on his own oh. with no mic. And occasionally, like the, the 15 slash 35-year-old 
would kind of vaguely put the mic down near him and then kind of take it back. Mm. And the worst part was the 15-slash-35-year-old couldn't sing. was oh. so bad. Like, get out of it, mate. Oh, this is really terrible. What a sad can't story. You can't, can't steal, steal a bloody mic from a child no. in karaoke. Unless you're really sure that that's your moment to shine. In which case, maybe steal the mic. Like, if you're missing, if that's your karaoke song and you're like, this is being wasted on an eight-year-old, maybe. No, steal the mic off the other adult. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. All right. Yeah, it's two microphones. Never steal a mic off a kid. Oh, and then he goes, he sings, you know, it gets to the end and then starts tapping the mic. Oh, it was the (laughs) just. I can't can't even bring myself to do it. But you know that yeah, and all we hear is this loud because he he was trying to. It was his way of clapping at the end of the song. Oh God! Don't do that to the microphone. And the song the song goes for six minutes. Yeah, but then later someone did. um, uh, Oh, what's that really long song? Doesn't matter. Someone oh, did American Pie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was thinking Led Zeppelin Stairway to Heaven or no, oh, they go no, forever. They American Pie, but a terrific job. And everyone sang along to that. I so hate that was... song so much. Yeah. Every time it comes on, I find myself singing. I'm like, I hate it. Yeah. Oh, really? You I can. hate it. I don't know. Mm. It's just one of those songs that I've been, you kind of been tricked into thinking is good. And yeah. then actually halfway through it, it just does something to my innards. Oh, oh what's, right. What's, what's your karaoke song? I don't know that a lot of lot of karaoke places don't have songs so, I'd like to sing. Yeah, like I I've never done it, but I think you'd have to find a classic. Yeah, I I would like to you know if there was more Oasis on uh, karaoke. Mm, yeah, Oasis is a classic, an absolute classic. You cannot go wrong with "Don't Look Back in Anger." That was the yeah. song that took me from non karaoke to karaoke. Mm. Oh wow, cool. Yeah, I I think little by little would be fun. Oh. Because and also it would just be it would get too big on me and I'd think that would be funny. Oh yeah, because I'd try and I'd fail. Of course I'd fail. Give it a go now. No, no. I, well, it's it's it would. Uh, I'll do mine. I did. Um, <laughs> I did. But it's kind of an obscure Oasis <laughs> yeah. cut too. So you're like, uh, you know, you haven't gone for the obvious bang up. People mm. are kind of like, what is this? Yeah, oh, yeah. Is it Oasis? Is it the bad record they released? And I'll try and sing it so because it. The vocals are just so loud on that song. Uh, this is very true. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that would be mine. But there's, I don't think I've ever seen it on a machine. Oh. I don't think Little by Little is a big enough hit. I'm, so, I'm actually Googling the lyrics to it now because I'm trying to remember because I know the chorus. <laughs> I, can't rem- I can't remember the way it starts for the life of me. <laughs> oh, my God, that's so strange. What a strange Oasis track to choose. And it starts like the vocals are like spoken so people had no idea what, you, you're not what they're about, about to get into. About... So once it kicks in, oh, you, you reckon f- enough people will? Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't know that they would. I remember would, they'd be like, oh, yeah, this is sad. Maybe the, the company that you keep will absolutely be Maybe. I don't think it would alienate people who didn't know who, what it was. No. I think it would mm. be familiar enough that people would just nod and smile. Yeah. yeah. And that's w- all I'm after. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Triple. Ah. Meow, meow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
The globe-trotting music theatre tragic yes. comic stage-dominating diva boasts sell-out seasons dominating. from... dominating I love that. <laughs> from Berlin to New York's Lincoln Centre, London's West End to the Sydney Opera House. She's in Melbourne for Apocalypse Meow. Crisis is born at Malthouse and Cabaret's Force of Nature joins us now. Meow, meow. It's an hour on for you to grace breakfasters. It is, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> welcome, Cheerily. I say welcome. <laughs> no, I'm, ex- I'm excited. I don't really know where I am, so I thought, oh, yes, I'll go. Well, what is a Meow Meow Christmas? Well, this one is obviously a little early. It's in November. Mm. Cut price, off-peak, bargain <laughs> Christmas show. Well done, Malthouse. Um, this this show's pretty – I've done it in London, um, in a, uh, at the South Bank and then at the Globe – and which is a beautiful sort of little candlelit theatre, and now this is sort of you know exploding onto the stage of the Mold House. It's quite a tender show, actually. Mm-hmm. It sort of masquerades as a panto, you know, stupid high comedy, low comedy ridiculousness, and it sort of I think progresses to something else that's quite beautiful. I think a yeah. little bit weepy even. And Carol, if only because I kick people. But, <laughs> so it's sort of it's sort of um, all faiths, no faiths in a way, but it does draw very much on a dissection of what the potential is, I guess, of any myth or faith mm. um, that sort of you know festivals give us a moment to contemplate what what is that. Do you have a preferred Christmas carol? I'm very partial to In the Bleak Midwinter because oh. um, it's just so Australian. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think um, I like the ones that have tenderness in them, actually. I feel like we're sort of screaming so much in the world and that's probably always been the case, but it's super loud at the minute and there's something um, really just about the, the tenderness and the possibility, I guess, of a child. Mm. How have we gone so you know, hideously wrong when it's such a miracle to make it to breathing, basically. Yes, and speaking of children, what is the role of children in Christmas? Well, I I begin by using a tripod line, actually. There's a time and a place for children and Christmas is not it. <laughs> and, uh, and, then, um, and then that sort of becomes something else. Because I do think, you know, regardless of faith, there's something about, yeah, the miracle of the fact that we're breathing is extraordinary mm. and that seems to get lost in the noise of um you know mega hate i've been touring the us uh with pink martini the lovely band called pink martini and so being in a different hotel room every night and just passing the foyer you know the lobby tv just screaming 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 mm. um i guess i'm always sort of searching for more beauty in um, yeah, in tiny little miracles is is what I've gone for. Mm. It's still ridiculous. Don't panic, listeners. Um, <laughs> and the poignancy will creep up on you, one hopes, much, <laughs> much like I did on all of you this morning. I, I have to say it was a visual gag, but the, the three um, people in this room all nearly had heart attacks. Yeah, I did. It yeah. was the most terrifying thing. I've turned around and there you are pressed up against You're the welcome. window. You're <laughs> welcome. Yeah, it was a classic creep. It was very well done. <laughs> It was pretty great. I'm looking beautiful, but still, <laughs> I've left I've left the shroud of meow on the um, on the windows where I, I couldn't help it. They're all they're all so sweet and slightly snuggly, um, morningy. La- last time I saw you uh, perform was at the Woodford Folk Festival. Oh, that was a ma- with Amanda Palmer. Yes. Yeah. 
uh, and it was incredible. Uh, so my question is, is there anywhere you haven't performed in the world yet? <laughs> and if so, where is it? Where would you like to perform? Oh, that's an amazing question. I've had some pretty bonkers um like I've been in France with Pink Martini again, which is like, you know, 20,000 people stage diving. It's quite exciting. That's incredible. <laughs> um, I'd like to perform on the set of an Almodovar film, just saying, hurry up, All right. book me. Sure, I'm sure they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> they are. <laughs> um, that's an interesting thing because it's, it's all... I love Sydney Opera House. I love tiny little, you know, sweaty gay bars. It's really, I don't know. I think. What's the appeal of both of them? What's the appeal of something like the Opera House and how do you compare that to a sweaty little gay bar? I get to touch more people oh, yes. in um, a gay bar because I can, you know, probably do it within a song, whereas the Opera House takes, you know, an epic operatic number, but I can still touch everyone and no one should feel safe. Mm. <laughs> I like the ridiculousness of, of not that I wear stage dive, but particularly in somewhere like the Opera House, it's so um, ridiculous in a huge ball gown, you know, yeah. with bosoms falling out. And I do wear many pairs of stockings, so there's, it's just really, it's all pretend but um you know it's something I don't know it's just I think it's so I'm so obsessed with live performance and how that you know everything is so structured that there's something you just can't fake when you're Mm. when you're in that situation people are going to drop you or they're not and they have to put their phones down they can't just film the hilarious moment they have to support you so it's like um a desperate attempt at connection. <laughs> Do you ever surprise yourself at what the bug of performance does to you? Yes. Yeah, it is a weird adrenaline. That's for sure. I mean, I'm I'm awake now. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, and also strange things happen too. I think people are, you know, you can't really control when you move people either when you think you're being terribly serious, that's when people are most laughing or the other way around. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but I I never like to do one you know, I never really do narrative, straight narrative songs or direct songs. I always do things that have lots of layers on them. So it's usually something happening while I'm singing. So it sort of opens up the interpretation, I guess, the possibilities. I don't really like anything that is directly, I am feeling this. Mm-hmm. I've got a friend who's a performer who says to me, they're quite unique, but they say that they feel like they're always performing even for themselves in private because that's how much they love it. And before we went on air, you were talking about <laughs> washing your um, stock, <laughs> your fishnets. <laughs> yes. The other day, what's your, when you're not performing, when it's just you washing your fitnet, fishnets, what's that time like? It's still, I mean, I think we perform all the time. That's why I live off off stage in a heightened way because I think we all do actually. We all wear uniforms, we all wear costumes and why not open a suitcase and have a whole lot of sparkly things? You know, I think actually everyone, I'm a strong believer in everyone's performing themselves all the time. That's that's what we do. But I've learnt to, I think, being surrounded by things that are beautiful, however little or tiny that is. So I do like to wear a turban. <laughs> For instance, if I'm doing the cleaning, I love that. You know, it's, it's you've got. I mean, I find myself ridiculous at the best of times, yeah. And uh, also in the you know sort of the most tragic times, there's something that we'll still see. It's Chekhov, really. I always love that line. Or you know, uh, I'm in mourning for my life. Or, oh, you've got a bumblebee brooch. You know, <laughs> that's the way the brain works. That's that's it flicks in and out of you know deep distress and oh shiny something or. 
I just feel like I'm quite, in a very heightened way, very honest to that. Yes, I, and I think just chucking fishnets in with my washing from now no, on would, not, would do that. No, no, no they, they, they lose their elasticity. Okay, right. <laughs> you can't be doing that. You need a good, strong brand, though, to start off with. Okay. You don't just sing in English. I don't. What, what, what do you... I sing in tongues <laughs> and thongs. Um, it's all typographical. Uh, I sing in lots of languages, mainly French and German. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of Mandarin with on the Pink Martini album, Get Happy. And the new album I've just done yes. with um, Pink Martini with Thomas Lauderdale, it's called Hotel Amour. Lots of original songs, but there's... Um, Do you know why I'm holding it up like this? Like I'm Rove. I'm, I'm <laughs> 10 years ago, <laughs> yeah. holding up the album. But yeah. I'm still enjoying it. It's a beautiful cover. It's, um, it's a collaboration with Thomas that we did. We've, we've sort of been writing songs together for about 10 years and we've, we've done this recording with... Um, I've got the Von Trapp children on there. That's incredible. That is incredible. The actual Von Trapps. The actual Von Trapps. The grandchildren of one of the children. They are, like. not only are they beyond anything you could dream in terms of goodness, like really good, heartwarming, um, but they're also sort of super duper indie folk singers as well. So they're sort of quite exciting. And Thomas had met them when they were doing Lighting the Lights at Portland um, in Oregon uh, for the Christmas tree. And then he did an album with them and I was having a super a tricky time and he called me and said you need to come to Portland straight away the Von Trapps are here and when the Von Trapps are near (laughs) no he said when the Von Trapps are near things can't be all bad (laughs) and they entered my life and I I had them sort of come on as an intervention in a show I was doing with a symphony there and um I was singing a song of love is a sad song and then from the audience hi Lily hi Lily hi Lily (gasps) And then they all slowly came out like oh, little mice. Oh, my God. I what said, world do you live in? Exactly. Oh, no. But I've just done Hollywood Bowl with them. And I have wow. to say, we were doing, it was the Fond Traps. It was, um, and of course, you know, I had the little tiny dirndls made for them. Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> and And I pulled them out of my suitcases and said, you know, who are you? Well, I'm Melanie Von Trapp. <gasps> Melanie Von Trapp, I've dreamed of this all my life. And I brought out these tiny little things like I've been carrying these for years. <laughs> <laughs> and we all sang together. I think my face, my heart actually. So they're singing with me. They're, we sing wow. that song on the album. Ah. But, but at Hollywood Bowl we had the Fond Traps. We had Ari Shapiro from All Things Considered, NPR. I don't, I don't know. Yes. Yeah. He's amazing. He um, is a regular member of Pink Martini. Beautiful voice. We had 14 Miss Americas, mainly from the 1950s and 60s, wow. singing I Am Woman. And then we had Kathleen Sadat, who's an 80-year-old civil rights activist, uh, singing Love for Sale, all with the L.A. Philharmonic. Oh, my God. And then we had been to see the, the Bob Baker marionettes that afternoon who'd just been forced to move out of their theatre for 50 years. So they, they came on. While we were doing the encore of Brazil, we had marionettes, the Miss Americas, Kathleen Sadat. Um, Just another day at the office. It was so <laughs> joyful and I think that's really – and also because, you know, we're sort of a natural fit because we love all these different cultures, I think, musically. It's quite a pleasurable, special thing um, to hurl all those things at an audience. But it is what planet – I mean, that's my, mm. that is my happy place. Mm. Well, catch the shroud of Meow Meow while she's in town. 
Uh, Apocalypse Meow, Crisis is Born at uh, Malthouse Theatre from yeah. now until 1st of December. Yes. Uh, go to malthousetheatre.com.au for more details. And Meow Meow, such a pleasure to have you. Melbourne's own Triple R. Uh, sorry. <laughs> That's all right, the computer's had a little bit of a... Oh, yeah, here we sprung go. Sprung it on you. <laughs> you did. Yeah. Um, a lot of things been sprung on me today. I um, <laughs> went <Work>. out... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here I am. I um, to, I haven't been home yet. Um, Whoa. No. Yeah, that's a lot. Oh, <laughs> yeah. God. When I came right. in, she's a little bit hungover. Yeah. I'm like, how are you hungover on a Wednesday? Because <laughs> last night um, I went to... We had our annual lesbian Christmas dinner party. Um... And this is just with um, – I just go out – I just went out for dinner with um, the Cates and Edo and uh, this has been a, a kind of ongoing tradition that we've had for the last few years. I think it's been about five – I think the first one was about five years ago. Maybe yeah, more than five years ago. that's definitely tradition status. Yeah. Yeah, it does take a couple of years, but I'd agree. Yeah. I, but I think it's not – I think we try to have one every year, but we might not. And there might be different versions of it. Like sometimes other people come and we're like, that's okay. You can come to our annual lesbian Christmas dinner. Um, and it, it it's just called that because about, yeah, it was about five years ago. The four of us went out for dinner one night. We just wanted to catch up. It was in December or late November. We're like, we just want to catch up. And we had dinner and then we're at a pub uh, nearby, just sitting having a drink, but there was these guys that just kept on hassling us, just mm. wanting to. What are you? What are you ladies up to? <laughs> What's going on here? What's it? What? What? And we're like, oh, can you just? Please... Uh, I just want to say hi. Yeah, just want to say hi. I'm like, can... we're all like, can you just please just stop talking? What are you? What, what's going? Are you lesbians or something? And then I just goes, yes, yes, we're all lesbians and we're just trying to have our annual Christmas party. Can you please leave us, leave us alone? Um, so that's how that it was all born. Um, but we went out for dinner last night, uh, had some lovely Japanese, um, and thank goodness Edo booked because it was empty the entire time oh. we were there. But Tuesday night's delicious. a smart night to book out for dinner, though. No one goes out for a, on a Tuesday night. Yeah, it was Tuesday, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but it was, yeah, because the food was beautiful and, and lovely. I love um, when you order just the right amount of food as well. Oh, and Japanese so, is good because it's small bits, but you yes. can just keep going. You can do a spread. We had it on Friday night after, um, after the Greville thing, and I just was like, oh, I've ordered too much food. But then I thought, no, it's just a perfect amount. Yeah, felt really good. Yeah. Also, the perfect amount of wine. Actually, probably too much of that. Uh, Had a little wine. Um, Edo set her head on fire at one stage. No. Her hair. Yeah, because she, she put her hair in, accidentally put her hair in a candle and whoosh, up it went. She all right? Just a little bit. Just it was a just little bit a, a little. She singed her hair. Oh. Jeez, that stinks, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, even the tiniest bit of hair fire <laughs> yeah. is... Terrifying. It was a tiny little If bit. your hair's greasy, does that or greasier than usual, I guess it's more flammable. Oh maybe. I'd say less flammable. Oh really? Yeah. yeah dry, the... brittle hair would be go more up. flammable. Yeah. Oh, rather than something Mate, oily. Yeah. Something oily might stay lit for a bit longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> keep that keep it burning for a while. But... Oh yeah, gross. Um, um, yeah, but also so inspired by Donnie Benet, I had two dinners. Oh, oh. yeah. What Shameful. Time, what time was the first one? What no depends what time the first one was. Uh, the first one would have was at uh, seven thirty. 
Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah, late first dinner. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, oh, we're thinking, oh, you had dinner at five. Well, yeah. I was hungry. I mean, I, I, I dropped Jessie. She, she goes to some fitness thing, Bardies. It's like, it's like something that, it's a ballerina type deal. Oh, cool. And, uh, and I thought I'd pick her up at the end. So I thought I'll hang around. And I had the, this, you know, this entree. I gave myself an entree because I was going to meet dinner with her after. Oh. But the, the entree got out of control. And I was like, I don't want a second dinner. Oh, no. Like, I'm stuffed. And, but I can't. I, I've ruined. What was the entree? How did it get out of control? Uh, it was six It was six chicken wings. Well, there's your mistake. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and they were fried. And then I had, and then the, the I got a, a free drink as well. So I got oh. the, I got, I had two pints of beer. <laughs> and, you know, it was, and then. <laughs> And then she came out of the class and she wanted ribs. So oh. off we get go get ribs and she wants chicken as well. So Hang we're on. getting chicken. So did you did you eat the chicken while waiting for her? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. In that time. Oh, my God, yeah. Daniel. And then, and then had That's a second right. dinner. That's a good amount of time <laughs> to have some. A snack, track. yeah. yeah. Uh, and, then, and then she wanted ice cream at the end of that. So it you was just, like. An, you don't have to have all those things as well. I th- I agree with you on, but I I don't know what's wrong with me. Like I can't be. I, I need but I need also, to be a team player. Yeah, yeah. I completely understand because if I was with someone and they were getting ice cream, mm. I'd totally get it. Yeah, well. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, if you're gonna yeah. twist my arm, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no twisting. Anyway, needed. two dinners. What did you? What ice cream did you have? Salted caramel and two uh, dinners and a dessert. <laughs> <laughs> Um, to, the salt, triple D, yeah, and and something Dolce. It was absolutely oh. outstanding, and um, ate it in the car. Didn't didn't so, leave the car until I'd finished it. Oh so god, I was, it was it, it was really uh, it was really quite specially decadent. Oh, good on yeah. you though. It's Thank like you. the middle aged version of Beck's two turntables <laughs> and a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, okay, I'm so proud of last night. Last night. I had a little bit more time on my hands yesterday, and so I decided to cook, actually cook a dinner via a recipe. Whoa. Yeah, via a recipe. Have no. a look at us. I know. Not just <laughs> Bring it up the standard for all of us, Sarah. <laughs> I know. I'm such a good partner. Uh, a friend of mine shared this website recently, which probably, it's Bon Appetit, but there's this part of it that's called Basically, and, I, and she, said this, she shared this delicious looking recipe, and she cooks a lot. So I thought, I want to see the kinds of things that she cooks that she's so confident mm. about. And I clicked on it, and this website, it shows you. So you get the ingredients, there's pictures of them and words, and then you scroll down a bit further, and it has method. Mm-hmm. And the method has little videos that go with these cute wow. little, you know, like those That's little handy. fun food videos that are on Instagram that mm. are really popular. So it's got those little step-by-step. And I just looked at it and went, I can do this. Because so often it says char yeah. something, and I go, what does that mean? Yeah. Or mixing the nuts with the butter, and you go, I don't know what that means. Like mm. mix, Yeah. Mixing them, but you know, you know how long for? And then you yeah. watch it and you go, "Oh, so that's mixed. really great." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what I cook sounds like I just cooked roast vegetables, but it's not true. So it's it was roast sweet potato with charred lemons and crunchies. But let me tell Ooh, you what yeah. this involved. What are the crunchies? Well, the crunchies were, and I even swapped out one of the ingredients. So the crunchies were hazelnuts uh, with like cumin and fennel seeds and mm-hmm. uh, in butter. You kind of cooked it in butter so the butter was brown. Yep. 
but I swapped them out for pistachios because there were none. And I said that was an option to do. And I felt I felt really brave. Like this yeah. whole brave new world where I was attempting a recipe and going, yeah. I am going to swap an ingredient out and see mm. what happens. Cool. Uh, and it was just roast sweet potatoes, which was fine, which is easy. Uh, and then I made like a some kind of a Greek yogurt with lemon juice squeezed in it. I know this sounds super basic to people that probably cook a lot, but it was so fancy. And when Andrew got home, it blew his mind. He had the worst day. Oh, that's the best part. And he he, he kind of thought, he goes, have you cheated on me? And I was like, no, I haven't cheated (laughs) on you. Oh, no. Because I've had the worst day and I couldn't be bothered. He's like, I was just thinking about what I was going to cook for dinner. And, and then I cooked this and I served it up and he could, he just went, I feel like maybe you've secretly been able to cook our entire relationship oh, and you've been yeah. hiding it from me and now you wow. need to cook more. Because it was that good. It was that good. You know when you think, I've put all these ingredients on a plate and thought, I don't know, I've cooked these nuts too long with all their spices mm. and there was so much butter that I went, Something doesn't. Something isn't right here. So much butter. That's why it was delicious. Yeah. yeah well, this is what I learned. Then I realised there's no such thing as so much butter. <laughs> yeah. That that was probably why it was so good. And then when I served it, I thought this combination of things looks good, but I just feel like he could eat it and go, "This is foul." Like you've, mm. I don't know, the butter had gone off, or so. there's all these things. But it was so good. Oh, well done. So Thank is this you. is this a new you? Like is is this yeah. are you instructional videos in the I kitchen? Think maybe. Mm. I think it might be. I, um, and I'm into like so you had fun you enjoyed the I process. I really enjoyed it, and often I watch like I never used to do this, but Andrew does it. Is what have something playing in the background on a on a laptop and watch something mm. while you're cooking. But I don't enjoy it because I get too distracted. I'm not very good at mm. cooking as it is. So I just put on the radio. I was listening to Vaughn. He was a double bounce last night. Mm. I put on the radio really loud, and I had a glass of wine. Mm. Well, have a look at you. I know. Have a look at all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. It is time for Weird Science and we're joined by Dr Andy Horvath. Hi. Hi. Are you awake? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Good, because I want to talk about sleep research. Mm-hmm. Now, when you say just, I, I'm with you, I, I was a bit bleary this morning and I thought, oh, no, I'm going on Triple R. I'm going to end up being sort of like in a sleep-talking phase. Because <laughs> you know what it's like when you don't get enough sleep? I mean, Yes. Oh, yes. We, we all know. barely yeah. function. <laughs> exactly. You can't make decisions. Apparently, your creativity goes down. Your concentration goes down. So, um, in fact, uh, some people were saying it's an economic crisis we've got the zombie apocalypse that's just not awake out there at work or doing their thing but not really in the moment because they're all sleep deprived Mm. so can i say when i'm tired i think how easy it would be to for me to be replaced by a robot not necessarily here but when you see people functioning at 50 percent and needing even needing sleep yeah, I just feel like we're not, you know, the people wouldn't think of us as productive workers. Well, absolutely, and that's why it's an economic crisis yeah. for, for, for those in industry and uh, with the neoliberal attitudes. Yeah. Um, however, I'm more concerned about 
our health and our well-being. Mm. Um, now, we go through four stages of sleep. We've also got that light sleep, and then we enter another phase. And then there's this third phase, which is called non-REM, non-rapid eye movement sleep, which is a deep sleep. And then we go into REM sleep, which is dream sleep. Now, something interesting happens at non-REM sleep, and, and scientists have thought about this a lot. So what's it for? You know, and they've, they've noticed things like, you need it for your memory. So obviously there's neural connections in the brain going ping, 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 pew, 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 and connecting up. Yeah. And then there's other things like your hormones are regulating because you know when you get jet lagged, okay, the hormones you know, are kind of like out the window, melatonin being one of them, but also other well-being hormones that are in the body that keep you going are sort of out of sync. So there's a lot going on while we sleep and it takes a lot of energy. So you've got to do it while we're not out hunter-gathering, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got to do it then. And uh, what they've noticed is that there's something going on in that deep phase of sleep. What happens is the neurons start to sort of go, sort of sink in together. They sort of like tick-tock together. And then there's this slow wave. The neurons go kind of quiet. They c- and they've noticed that even the sh- cells start to shrink. The blood volume in the brain is decreased. Oxygen to those cells is decreased. And what happens is there's this amazing clear fluid that bathes our brain called cerebral spinal fluid. It's what you what they extract when you get a lumbar puncture, if you, if you sadly need one, um, and some of us do. And then all of a sudden that cerebral f- spinal fluid flows over the brain and washes the brain. What? I know. It's a human rinse cycle. Now, they've known this for a while. That What this... is it rinsing away, though? Ah, that is the million-dollar question. <laughs> what is it rinsing away? Well, it's shown, and they've done some studies in mice, and now they're starting to do studies in humans. It's actually rinsing away toxins and bits of protein fragments, stuff that's gone on from all the chemical metabolic reactions uh, in the brain. Yeah. There's bits and pieces left over. Now, I'm going to say a word that's going to strike fear in a lot of people, so just brace yourselves. Beta amyloid. Now, if you're going, hang on, that doesn't <laughs> ring a bell for me, let me then add it to the world, Alzheimer's. That what oh. we've known in science is beta amyloid is this sort of break-off bit of a protein um, that's involved in your brain. It's a larger amyloid protein, and it's involved in sort of like connecting the inside and outside cells, doing things. They're not quite sure what it does, but they've noticed in Alzheimer's a little bit of broken-off beta amyloid gets stuck in your brain called brain plaques so it's really sticky and apparently if you if you if you can wash it out that actually might remove the beta amyloid plaques now this is important why (laughs) i know i know i know if we could approach alzheimer's with a different approach because at the moment they're trying to like um understand Alzheimer's by blocking that sort of beta amyloid, but it's not working. Those drugs aren't really working. If we could approach it a different way, maybe we've got to think about the fluid that's washing our brain yeah. and what we could do with that to deal with these neurodegenerative orders, disorders like um, Alzheimer's. Right. There's another protein called tau, which is another sticky chap. Uh, so there's all these toxins that they've realised, oh, my goodness, look at that. There is a rinse cycle in the brain. Now, they've finally done the studies on humans, which is why I'm excited, because it means they stuck these people. Can you get a load of this? I don't know if you've ever had an MRI 
But yes. right, it's kind of a noisy kind of machine that they put you in. They put these people, they made them stay up late the night before. They put these people in an MRI machine, stuck all these electrodes on their heads to work out what stage of sleep they're in, and then looked at, did the various tests, and they said, wow, that's what happens. The neurons go into this sort of low mode and then the blood and oxygen decrease and then there's these waves of washing and they come every 20 seconds for a while. And this is kind of awesome. So this stage of sleep is really important. So if we're sleep deprived, it's interesting because we sometimes end up only having two cycles of sleep in the night. If you're not sleep deprived, you're getting three or four. So what is the take-home message here, kiddies? It is (laughs) we need our sleep because we need our rinse cycles. It actually has an association with neurodegenerative disorders. So Mm. there's that link of, of, of what people have been trying to tell us about sleep hygiene. Yet another reason why you need your seven, eight hours. Is, yeah. there, is there like a quality of sleep that you require as well? So um, a lot of people I know kind of get anxious and so including myself and start wake, you know, you still have, wake up, you go to sleep, you wake up, you go to sleep. Is that kind of sleep uh, an interrupted form of yes, sleep that we is. need? Yeah. Yes. Often humans do a bit of a catch up sleep on the weekend, but a lot of uh, scientists are saying it's not enough. That catch up oh. is still not enough. Um, in order to get your optimal sort of functioning. And it's a really interesting area because even fruit flies sleep. Yeah. So there's something from an evolutionary perspective that says we all need it, even fruit flies mm. need sleep. I don't know. Don't ask me about bacteria. Yeah. I don't know. Well, it's probably the sugar crash from all the fruit. Well, <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because if you're also sleep deprived, you crave carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's oh, some don't. wonderful studies we can about... We to this. <laughs> whenever, whenever, whenever you start this job, we always warn each other, just be aware that you're going to eat a lot for the first three months. Yeah. Yeah. It totally makes sense. And that's part of your hormonal profiles and your digestive system all linking in with each other. Um, there is a, this fantastic study they did where they noticed that people who only got six or seven hours sleep, uh, or sorry, six hours sleep, were more obese than people were who had eight hours sleep. In mm. fact, I think it was about 41% of, of that group were Um, had obesity problems and they had less sleep and that's been established for quite a while. The science behind it is the craving for carbohydrates. I think the need to sort of get energy to be able to function in your wake state Yeah, Uh, and it's a quick energy source. So it totally makes sense uh, why you'd have that particular carbohydrate craving. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're sleeping in, you're not being lazy, you're warding off dementia and obesity. Correct. Yeah. In fact, you're not yes. relaxing. <laughs> it's an essential necessity. <laughs> yeah, everyone, you're entitled to take a nap. <laughs> you know, I was reading a little bit about the history of sleep because I did something interesting last night. I was so exhausted from work. I got home and I just like collapsed after work, right? Uh, missed the news, missed everything, got up and then I thought, oh, I better, you know, do something, feed the dog, that sort of stuff. And then I went to sleep again. Well, I was reading about the history of sleep. Apparently that used to be the normal way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Two sleeps. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, I thought, right, I'm right in sync with my evolutionary <laughs> history. I'm, I'm sort of tapping in my inner orangutan. <laughs> or no, sorry, chimpanzee. What am I saying? Chimpanzee. Well, the scientists have... So, so just what's the, uh, what, what amount of sleep should people be getting tonight, be trying to get? How many hours? Well, they, the scientists suggest eight hours, seven to eight That's hours. Still- and um, And 
Also, if you're like the arty type, I was thinking about this too, creativity also requires quite a bit of, uh, I guess we'll call the word cognitive load that, you know, that sort of a lot of energy for it. And if you've got a lot of things going on when your cognitive load is large, you can't concentrate. You start making bad decisions. Um, and if you think about it, you know when you're in the shower and you're kind of relaxed and you start thinking of thoughts or when you're going to sleep, mm-hmm. you start thinking of ideas and you go, oh, I've got to write that down. So there's something about that state that also helps your creativity. Wow. I know, I know. How illuminating. So I just hope that this segment hasn't made people fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, the opposite. Because I've been rabbiting on. <laughs> no. uh, Dr. Andy, thank you so very much for coming in. You're so welcome. It's my pleasure to visit Triple R and uh, get a good night's sleep. <laughs> Triple R. The famous Melbourne Music Bus Tour is hitting the road once more with another series of guided tours around the music sites of Melbourne. And here to tell us about it is Melbourne Luminary, music journalist and friend of the station, Mary Mihalakos. Mary, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, what a lovely um, introduction. Thank you. Oh, our absolute pleasure. Um, now, the Melbourne, Melbourne Music Bus Tour starts this weekend. Yeah, well, it's our fourth season, so we've been operating for two years as mm. an extension of the Australian Music Vault at the Arts Centre Melbourne. So I was doing the bus tours for about three years before that with as part of the Leaps and Bounds Festival with um, the same team of Bruce Milne as the tour guide and Mrs Chris as the bus driver. And then when the Australian Music Vault opened, I pitched it and said, well, beyond Fitzroy, Richmond and Abbotsford and Collingwood. It'd be great to do this, you know, metropolitan Melbourne tour of Melbourne music history. And then they went, yeah, that's a great idea. And we um, have been working with the um, with the Arts Centre ever since. This is our fourth season and we've um, the biggest season so far because we've got dates right through to the end of June. Cool. And what do you have in store? Well, it's – we. It is pretty much – we've got a format which – and every bus tour is different because we always have – a different guest. So the bus is a 25-seater bus and we start at either 11am or 2pm. There's two on Saturdays. And we go from um, – we, we travel around Melbourne and we stop um, generally at the Corner Hotel because we also get to have a photo opportunity with Molly and um, <laughs> with, with the Molly statue. No, and then sometimes we go past Molly's place and Molly actually gets out and gives us a wave. <laughs> so depending on who's on the bus. So every bus tour has a different special guests. So they're usually they're, – they're generally um, some singers. So, um, But we don't tell anyone who the guest will be. Wow. So yeah. Surprise guest. It it's always a surprise because that, you know – it's Yeah, part of the fun. It also means that if they bail, I've got time to get somebody else and no one's disappointed. So, <laughs> Bloody musos. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, it's, it's really <laughs> fun. So <laughs> no, Genius, Mary. It's so good. So I'll tell you some of the guests we have had. <laughs> yeah. and, and some of – two of these people are going to be on the bus this week. Um, Russell Morris. Billy Miller from the oh. Ferrets, Jane Clifton, Deborah Conway, Bob Starkey, Kim Salmon, Adelita, Paul Stewart from the Painters and Dockers, Stephen Cummings, Sam Sajavka, um, Dave Graney and Claire Moore, Cash Savage, Fiona Lee Maynard, David Bridie, Angie Hart, Peter Luscombe, Bob, um, have I said Bob Starkey, um, Chris Stockley from the Dingoes, Gil Matthews, who's who was in Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, Wilbur Wilde, and Mick Harvey and Michael Thomas. God, oh my God. God. Yeah. Will, there be, will there be any seats on the bus for punters? <laughs> oh, they're not all on the bus. You only get one. You only get one. one but that we have new people all the time. So mm. I am speaking to some some other um, musicians and 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 music ideas. 
entities to be on the bus. And I, what what are the kind of some of the stops that people can expect? Oh, we don't. We just drive oh, past. We don't stop because well, it's only sorry, two yeah. hours. And um, I sort of I I, I realised this was all right because I did the um, Sopranos and the um, and the Sex and the City tour in New York. Oh like, my god, I've done the Sex ago. and the City tour and, as well. And you don't get off the bus no. that many times. You just stop at that place to get the um, the cupcakes. <laughs> so I thought I can. So I, disappointing. I know, but the same thing is it's really successful. So I thought hey, they can do it. I can do it. Oh, yeah. I meant the so, cupcakes, but yeah. yeah, yeah, but without the cues for the cupcakes. Yeah. Well, and then um, so we just we just stop once, but we go through a lot of places. But it's really great because if um, if somebody is um, mobility. Is, is 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 not that great. They just have to get on the bus and stay on the bus and they're fine. And we have, you know, we have water and lollies and things on the buses if we need to. And there is, there, you know, there is one toilet stop and um, it's so much fun. It, and and you, you have an institutional memory of Melbourne music. Do, do you, can you pluck just one, uh, one extraordinary gig or one uh, highlight for us that might, you know, give us a taste of the experience on the bus? Okay, well, there's so many venues, so I'm not going to pick one in particular. But it's really fun going to the Dogs in Space house. Yeah, and sometimes we and we've had Sam Sajavko, who the the character Michael Hutchins is based on, and Michael Hutchins plays him on the bus. And so, and one day we went past the Dogs in Space house, and he knocked on the door, and the kids come come out that live in the family lives there now. And the thing is that we we don't go past it. We're not allowed to tell people where they live, but we do. We have seen that family grow up. It's kind of really wow. Um, wow. From a distance, you know, yeah. <laughs> and and there, so there's really, you know, because now we've done the bus tours for we're in our fifth or sixth year, but, but you know, only the second with Australian Music Vault. So, but we used to just do Fitzroy, Richmond, and Collingwood, and go to places like Bakehouse. When when I first started doing the bus tours, we used to do a bus a tour of the insides of Bakehouse, and that was incredible because you don't know who you're going to get in at Bakehouse. And, you know, you might get Paul Kelly rehearsing or something mm, like that. Wow. So, oh, I heard so cool. Dave Graney had a sighting. Oh, that, you <laughs> are so on it, Daniel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, Bruce Mill, but we should plug that Bruce is on Triple R and has a show on th- on Sunday nights mm. where he is. And he's our tour guide. Um, I'm on board as the producer and, and the creator of the thing and, and of course but he but there was a week that Bruce was away in Japan or something like that so I had to get some stand in bus tour guides oh I went to Claire and um, Dave um, Claire Moore and Dave Graney of course Claire, uh, Dave's also on Triple R on Tuesdays mm-hmm. And um, we were driving along Chapel Street and Nick Cave was <laughs> just outside, just oh, on God, Chapel Street, so much. just outside the Olsen Hotel. We were so, it was like he, he couldn't have planted it better. It was like everybody on the bus got to see Nick Cave. And wow. So it was pretty exciting. Oh, that is so excellent. And it's great that Dave Graney was the one who spotted him. So, you yes. know, it's a microphone. So. And probably just took it in his stride. Yeah. It, was, it was like we'd set it up. <laughs> Uh, what kind of people come on the tour? Because obviously, Triple R listeners would have a, a lot of them would have a passion for Melbourne music and already have a bit of knowledge. But I always struggle when, say, like my nephew visits for interstate to what, what to show him in Melbourne. Can you bring someone who has no knowledge of Melbourne music or Melbourne at all, or is it for the kind of the train spotters? No, it's because we always have a special guest. That guest usually sort of takes over the tour and tells a lot of stories. So when you've got these. Um, storytellers that are on the bus their, their stories are just so fascinating that even if you don't if you're not a massive music fanatic and a, and a train spotter it's still is interesting um, to you but what we do when we start the bus if 
depending on, you know, if we have to reroute. And sometimes it gets stressful with traffic. But what we do is we um, send the microphone back to the end of the bus and everyone sort of shares a music experience and it gets and um, with us. So we've got a bit of an idea of actually who's on the bus and then we sort of throw in some stories oh, cool. if they mention something that they might be interested in so everyone can sort of walk away feeling like, you know, it was for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you were at... Um the hi-fi bar when UMI, uh, when the stroke supported UMI. Yeah, mm. I was. Like, like is that, is, do, you, do you have, I mean, looking at Melbourne has such an extraordinary history, how do you perceive its future as well? Because the, the bus is looking backwards and also forwards. Yeah, well, we have... We do, but we just we do focus on on the past, and we but we do also look at the way music's changed. It's moved north, um, north. So it's interesting, like doing the bus tour, that you all, all these stories about St Kilda mm. and Richmond, and now if you're talking about music in the two thousand and after the two thousands, a lot of it's gone to Fitzroy and Collingwood and even Northcote now mm. and Thornbury with there's lots of venues. So we're look it's interesting, you know, geographically there, but but you know, there are lots of stories and lots of you know, there's so many stories, you will never run out of a story yeah. for them with you know, and you mentioned the hi fi I mean and the strokes and, and I actually took the strokes bowling to Kingpin Bowls at the casino at that tour because that was before, just before I think Cherry Bowl. What year Bar, was that? About 2000. <laughs> I was working there then. Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Cherry Holy <laughs> shit, I probably served you. I had no idea. <laughs> Mick Warhurst and I took them bowling and I've got sticker photos with them. Oh, my you know, God, the, you know those machines? Yes, of course yeah. I know. I just service that machine. <laughs> I took a lot of bands um, bowling back in the day. I think I was working at Beat Magazine at the time. And, you know, when this is – and a lot of bands just had started touring and a lot of promo people who worked – they were they were understaffed and sometimes they'd have, like, seven big acts at once. And I remember just being given a wad of cash from one of the guys at BMG and said, can you entertain the strokes? And I'm like, yeah. Can I? Wow. <laughs> and, and I got Karen Lang and Miff Warhurst to come with me oh. and it was great. Now Geraldine will be wow. stopping the tour. Who was the good bowler from the strokes, can you remember? Oh, I, I can't imagine Julie's, Julian Casablancas being good. enthusiastic. But he's he kind oh. of competitive, you know. Oh, there you go. And, and is it Nick? Yeah, oh, yeah. Nick, they're, both, they're pretty good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the Hives are really good bowlers. That doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> well, How was the service, though, when you were there? It's good service? At it, was, it was fantastic Thank service. Thank you. Thank I was, you. I, was, I would actually say that they used to really look after me because they, then they got used to me look, bringing in bands. So I used to be able, even able to change the music at <gasps> Kingpin to, the, to whatever music I wanted. And this is before Spotify and all those things. We yep. would be able to bring in CDs. I think at the time they had a sanity record shop there and I could, it was 24 hours. I could just go in there and just get the CD I wanted and they'd play it for me. Huh. Oh, my Were God. There, was the bumpers up for the strokes or the... I d- I, Across they the were, gutters? They were up for me. Well, Melbourne Music Bus Tour is a collaboration between Art Centre Melbourne and the Australian Music Vault. The fourth series starts this Saturday, 16th of November, and it runs until June 2020. And you can get uh, more information at artcentremelbourne.com.au. And there, there are tickets for this Saturday? There are plenty of tickets for all the, um, I think, the almost 30 dates that we've announced. But also, if anyone wants to send in questions, we've got a Melbourne Music Bus Tour um, Facebook page if you want to ask a question, you know, 
Christmas parties, you know, yeah. whatever, let us know. Um, we can fit up to 20, um, 18 or 19 tickets um, we can sell per tour. So it's pretty intimate. All right, so. brilliant. And uh, we've been speaking with creator Mary Mihalakos. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you so much for having and me. And we're going to take a track now for a man that features in uh, on the tour, oh, yes. I believe. We, we do go past the um, a couple of laneways. So we go past um, Roland S. Howard Lane, and now they've the St Kilda, um, the City of Port Phillips approved the Spencer P. Jones Lane, yes, and that's I'm... just up the street, up the same street. Cool. Triple R. Renowned motion picture, television and Broadway producer Jason Taylor is best known for his work on Hollywood blockbusters, notably X-Men First Class, X-Men Days of Future Past and X-Men Apocalypse. And he's had success in the independent space, including British thriller You Want Me to Kill Him and Netflix favourite The Taking of Deborah Logan. He's appearing in Melbourne as part of Screen Forever, Australia's premier event for screen industry professionals. And he joins us now. Jason, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, can, can I ask, what is your favourite X-Men film and how that might differ differ to your uh, favourite one to make? Um, Well, they're one and the same, but uh, (laughs) I I, I will say that uh, Logan was spectacular. Uh, But X-Men Days of Future Past was a a fascinating experience to work on and and really a a pleasure doing time travel, which is about what I work on most in Mm. science fiction. What is it about time travel? Uh, It's that idea of being able to change what we know um, and give the audience a new reality and and to think about what's going on. It's also very complicated. Uh, You know, uh, Back to the Future being one of the most classics as to what happened to the Marty that existed in that reality that is now changed. Mm. Where did he go? And, and, And kind of thinking of those paradoxes and you kind of step back and forget about all that and really get to know the characters. Uh, And Hugh Jackman, uh, longest running character in a series of all time, or is is that if I describe that almost accurately? I, I think it is pretty accurate. We'll, we'll just be waiting to see if they bring uh, Robert Downey back in some Iron Man form <laughs> later <laughs> in life. But, and it was, uh, it was he was saying it was really originally uh, the role was originally for Russell Crowe. There were times. I mean, it was. Uh, I, I wasn't involved way back then, but uh, I know there was there was a lot. But you eventually found the right person for the role. So. Well, he, he was kind of surprising for Australians when he got cast in that role because we'd always known him as kind of this great musical actor. Was it a surprise the way that he kind of took on that role and became it? Um, I think, luckily, I mean, I've had the the benefit of working with two Hughes. So Hugh Jackman obviously was Australian, but American audiences got to know him as Wolverine, and Hugh Laurie obviously has done tremendous amounts of comedy, but the American audience really got to know him for House MD. So, you know, it's kind of exposing actors to that that world and letting them inhabit a character. Mm. And how do you disentangle your influence on the X-Men films versus the inbuilt attractiveness of the the universe? I think the inbuilt attractiveness is what makes it so universal. Um, There's so many people that that go into making that effort, whether it's the directors, the producers, the writers, the actors themselves, um, and then, of course, the crew. Everybody contributes, and, and that's one of the reasons that I love filmmaking so much is that it's it's such a collaborative effort. Um, you know, my contributions always came from the the status of story and the point of of trying to keep a, a bird's eye view while while being involved with the director. Um, so it's it's truly just a joy to to see things or or notes or things that were. Uh, you know, helpful to mm. make sure that you keep the essence of the characters and why they've uh, been so popular for 40 years. 
Do the fans have any part in that collaborative process? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. The fans are who the movies are for. So, you know, if the audience gets wider than the traditional fanship, it's, um, it's always a joy. But you have to have the fans in mind because they're the ones that, that drive and make the popularity so the films get made for that budget level. Have, you, have there been times where you've been bailed up, though? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know. And what do you do? How do you handle it? Or do you just kind of go, thank you? Yeah, uh, you, you do a combination of both. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you try and hear everything. I think everybody who has notes or thoughts, uh, even if the notes or thoughts seem like they're not things that you can address, they stick with you. Yeah. You think about them and you think, okay, well, why were they giving that note? Why do they think that Wolverine should only be in the original costume or whatever it's going to be? Mm. And and you have to solve, well, why didn't you do that? What was it that, that made it you know, rational? And, and the X-Men movies, when they started, were always grounded in a reality. They weren't uh, comic booky. The Marvel movies have obviously embraced the comic book nature of everything from costumes to uh, the lunacy of, of uh, chaos and, and, and action sequences. So it, it really, for us, came down to being about the character and why they would do what they do in that world. Mm-hmm. Sci-fi is kind of your thing. Was there a film as a kid or a, a young person that you saw that made you fall in love with that as a genre? Uh, there was a lot. Um, I mean, I was partial to Erwin uh, Allen. I was partial to um, a lot of the, the Harryhausen stuff of the 60s and 70s, uh, Clash of the Titans. Um, there were a lot of things that just spoke to me, and, and I never knew what it was about them, just that it was another world, and it was things to to portray. I think science fiction is, is most powerful because... Uh, you see things that you don't really quite realize are, are happening already, uh, and it's a prism. Battlestar Galactica being the most recent example of, of a paradigm of the Iraqi war, you know, really kind of informing what it's like to be in a constant state of war. Um, and the X-Men paradigm is Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, peaceful resistance versus violent contribution to, to solving a problem. And it's those ideologies that really are at the heart of science fiction. You know, whether it's Logan's Run, whether it's uh, 2001, they all question what it is to be human in the human condition. And that's what is so fascinating about sci-fi. You have a foot in independent cinema and also this Marvel behemoth. Um, what What's your answer to the, you know, Scorsese weighed in on his disdain, you might call it, for Marvel films? Where do you land on that debate? Uh, I think content is content. Uh, I'm, I'm happy that the Marvel films are out there, and I love going to see them in the theater. I also go, love to go see Peanut Butter Falcon and hope that there's still a place for movies like that in the theater where you can go and experience it with an audience. Um, you know, I, I hope that there's uh, a great place where everybody goes to the theaters as often as they watch movies at home. Mm. But with so many choices at home and with so many choices in theater, it, it comes down to making sure that you're always on top of what the audiences want to see. Can you give us just a, a brief taste of a day in the life of a Hollywood film producer? If, pe- if people <laughs> can't get their head around what it is actually that you do. Um, it's a lot of phone calls and a lot of travel. So uh, it's a lot of organization. It takes a long time. I've been working on a few independent films for more than a decade. Um, and they just, when they come together, they come together right. Um, when it comes to a film like X-Men, 
uh, you basically plan you're going to shoot in Montreal or Sydney or London or Los Angeles, if you're lucky, um, you're going to shoot for eight months. And those eight months are 14-hour days and then planning on the weekend for the next week. Uh, for a good four to six months, and then you have post-production for six months to a year. Mm. And while you're in post-production, you're arranging what those next projects will be. Yeah. So it's it's a constant cycle, and it's it's great. I'm blessed to be in the film industry. I, I love it. Going to work every day is not really a job. It's what I enjoy to do. And, uh, and coming to conferences like Screen Forever is, is what you know, drives me and meeting new people and meeting the newer creatives and people who have ideas and, and trying to partner and realize those yeah. ideas you're appearing at screen forever but you're also in town on other business i am what what what, what uh, movie or project I'm, are you working on i'm producing a, a film called 2067 with cody smith mcphee and ryan Quan. it's uh, an australian production and uh the company i work with now called futurism out of new york uh is a, a science-based tech forward-thinking company that's reported all the news that's fit to print about science and we moved into fictional storytelling to again um, broaden the audience. You know, the more people that see science fiction films, it makes you think about, oh, the science is real. Uh, and it's it's very much about climate change and, and posits that in the not-so-distant future, yeah. uh, we have cut down every tree and are living on synthetic oxygen, and the human body was not made to live on synthetic oxygen. So uh, we're all, we're in one last city on Earth that still exists, and how are we going to survive? Okay. 2067. Oh, wow. um, and are you shooting at Docklands? Uh, we shot in Adelaide. Oh, right. Uh, and now we're in the final throws of post in Sydney and getting ready to release future. next year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not too far away, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, people often discuss the um, kind of greatest, in the genre of horror, the greatest kind of horror baddie, I guess, of all time or villain. Do you mm. think there is a greatest sci-fi hero? Um, I know you might have some bias in this, but... Um, I think there are tremendous sci-fi heroes. The 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 question is, and, and what I love about sci-fi, again, like as you said that, I thought you were going to ask about horror villains. My favorite film is Sons of the Lambs. So oh, is it really? Hannibal Lecter, Hannibal. because of how thoughtful, how smart, how everything he is, it's, it, there's a lot of, is he a villain? Is he you know, helpful to Clarice? What, what is he? And I go to the same place in sci-fi, where I think Dave and Hal are not necessarily villain and protagonist but really you know you understand where they're coming from you understand what that is the same thing with um uh uh um robert heinlein's novel um you 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 see ai as what it's trying to accomplish for humanity versus what is actually the reality of what's happening so so i don't see a great villain i see a great thought inducer, a great questioning of our reality and what those are in sci-fi. Because the great sci-fi villains like, you know, Blade Runner and and, and Deckard's challenges and and what that is and what replicants are. But again, it almost always comes back to what is the AI. You can have maniacal uh, billionaire Elon Tusk, Steve Jobs types that are trying to create that AI. Skynet is obviously probably the greatest villain of all time. You know, when when it comes down to, you know, destroying and there being no hope. Um, the new Terminator movie I, I thought was great in its t- uh, time travel stuff and, and what it means to constantly be up against what is this fate and what it will be. Um, but just trying to see all the sci-fi that comes out now, it's, it's great. There's limitless. And Anthony Hopkins, he won what? He was on screen for 15 minutes and mm-hmm. made that extraordinary impact. Absolutely. Mm. How, how far is your future already planned? Like 
Uh, I have a few films in development that I'm trying to get set up for next year. Uh, just always looking for the money. That's what we do, uh, <laughs> you know. And uh, that's that's really it, you know. Uh, my my future's planned on on Broadway at least for the next six months. I had a show that just opened or is opening in a month, but we're in previews now called Jagged Little Pill, and that's based on the Alanis Morissette album. Oh so God. I'm looking forward to is that. Is it coming to Australia? It will definitely come here at some point if we're a success in New oh, York, and, what a dream. and hopefully. <laughs> Um, but it's uh, it's not based on her life. It's a, a new story uh, written by Diablo Cody, the the writer of Juno. Oh, wow. And I'm just excited to be involved. Uh, theater has been a tremendous experience because it's very different, but also very the same. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of people in theater, and, and you get to work in New York, I suppose. I get to work in New York, and and I go back to LA. But the truth about the film business and why it's so great is, it's worldwide and it takes you to places that you never thought you'd go it takes you to places that you get to live and actually experience the culture but it also takes you away from home so it's a nomadic life Mm. Um, but it's it's definitely very rewarding well we're very happy to have you in town Uh, jason taylor is appearing in the panel what if the creativity craft and commerce of science fiction on screen at screen forever today and tickets are available via screenforever.org.au jason taylor thank you so much for coming in thank you guys Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.